This is New Classical Tracks from listener-supported American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for this show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. When I talked with pianist Michelle Kahn recently, I was blown away by her story. It really is an incredible journey she's been on for the past several years, and I hope you'll listen to this entire conversation, because not only has she studied at the Cleveland Institute of Music and the Curtis Institute of Music, where she currently teaches, in 2022 she was the recipient of the Sphinx Medal of Excellence, and now her journey continues on another life-changing path with the release of her debut recording. It's called Revival, Music of Price and Bonds, and we hear about it this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Well, let's start at the very beginning and tell me how the piano became your path. Well, the correct answer to that is that it starts with my parents. <laughs> and I think many would relate to this. Um, I was six years old and my parents thought this is a good instrument, good first instrument, actually, for my sisters and I to learn. And in my case, I did have a lot of inspiration and motivation from a young age. I have an older sister who's about six years my senior, and she was already playing the piano fairly well by the time I was six years old and and they were getting ready to get me started. And so I really wanted to be like her typical, you know, want to be like your big sister. And I think that absolutely was a big external motivation. And in addition to that, I just generally have a musical family. My father is a teacher and um, music teacher. He has worked K through 12 education um, his whole career and has worked, you know, uh, conducted many different ensembles, band, choir, even a steel drum band, so many really cool things. And so we just grew up around this. So we had that motivation, but we also had the discipline. And so I think that all of that together with a mother and father who really pushed us, understood the importance of practice and sticking with something, along with, I think, just an innate joy and love of making music were the recipes for uh, my future. (laughs) And your future took you to the Cleveland Institute of Music and then eventually to the Curtis Institute. And I have to secretly tell you that I watched the video interview that you did with your friend in Cleveland. I can't remember the name. It was like Living in Classical Music or something. Yeah, it's it's Living the Classical Life with um, Jolt Bognar. Yes. And I learned some fascinating things about you, so I'm going to ask you some of those things. And one of them is how you ended up at the Curtis Institute because... One of the things you do as an educator, as well as a performer, is you try to help young musicians find their path, right? And it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy not to believe in yourself. And you went down that path yourself. What can you share about that? What wisdom or insight can you share that might inspire us in this conversation? (laughs) 
Um, and I'm so glad that you uh, caught that particular interview. I I think one really unique thing about it is that the host of the show, Jolt Bognar, we both went to school together at the Cleveland Institute. He was actually a mentor to me when I came in as a freshman, and we stayed close friends. And so I have to say in that interview, I think it was the depth and honesty that I went to was actually refreshing even for me. And, I, and I'm glad to do that right here, right now. I believe that it's so important for artists, um, teachers, performers, what have you. I think one of the greatest things we can give to the next generation is our true and authentic selves. And literally just be willing to be vulnerable and give that honest truth about our experience and our journey. Because when we pretend, and I think that happens a lot, um, when I was young and I looked at the stars of that time, we tend to put them on a pedestal. And however it is that we view them as young students and young children, I think we just have this idea that, you know, they can do no wrong and, you know, they don't deal with the insecurities that we are currently dealing with as students, you know, and this is completely not true. So to give, I guess, to give one bit of specific advice is you are okay in everything that you are experiencing. We experienced when we were students, we still experience those things now, just simply as human beings together on this earth. We go through a lot of these same doubts. We doubt where we stand. We doubt where we are. Is oh, am I good enough at 20? Am I good enough at 15? Whatever it is. I think it's so important to remember that it's about the process and that process means everything because every step that you take, when you wake up and decide, I'm going to go practice my instrument for this amount of time and I'm going to be focused today, you've now made another step towards the success of your life. And, and that's in anything, you know, be, beyond music. But it's that process. It's what we're learning about ourselves is how we're growing. And then doors will open along the way. We cannot predict any of this, but the process is so valuable. So just understand that that journey that you're on will not and does not have to be the same as any other person that's you know out in the field performing, teaching, um, whoever you see as successful out there. They've had their own journey and they've had those same doubts, but they kept pushing. That's that's what success truly is, and I think it's it, it's um. It's essentially very, um, uh, it's not stagnant. Success is always, in, I think, forever changing how we define that for ourselves. Because as soon as we feel like we achieve something, we're looking for the next thing, and that is healthy. So I think we're just understanding that even those that you look at and say they made it, no, I don't. I don't believe that. <laughs> I mean, we may have achieved something, but we still have our own goals. So just remember that, that this process is everything and your journey is unique and beautiful and believe in yourself. I know that you explored a lot of different things when you weren't sure if the piano thing was going to work out for you. You explored biology, you took some violin lessons, and then you made a deal with yourself that you were going to do a bunch of auditions and get an artist diploma to get, basically, so you wouldn't accrue any more debt, right? You could continue <laughs> your studies and somebody else was going to pay for it. This is not uncommon. <laughs> and you ended up at Curtis almost, I don't want to say by accident by any means, but it was like your last audition in the process and it could have been a really intense situation, but you were able to actually go in that in a more relaxed way. Can you share that story, please? 
Absolutely. Um, I think what was really amazing about that year, the the audition year when I was, uh, um, as you mentioned, auditioning for an artist diploma degree, was that I had been at that point, probably one of the most dark points for me in my musical development, in which the doubts that I had of myself, those exact things I mentioned with am I as good as I should be at 21? Or, you know, where should I be? And look at all the other people around me who seem to be doing better. Again, I was getting stuck exactly where you don't want to get stuck, comparing yourself to others, comparing your journey. So at any rate, I think that whatever that was, my way out of it was this intense focus and practice and, you know, looking at these auditions as everything if I could go back and talk to myself at 21, I would have said, okay, relax a little bit. But at any rate, everything happens for a reason. Again, the process is what's so important. So that was my process. And yes, Curtis was the final audition out of, I think I did six or something like that. So I had done a pretty good amount of auditions at that point. And there was something really beautiful for me that happened, which is that the night before that audition at Curtis, I actually received an acceptance letter at an equally competitive school that would also cover my tuition for an artist diploma, like exactly what I needed. And and it was a great option. Knowing this definitely gave a sense of validation. And again, if I didn't get it, would I still have that confidence? Hopefully, right? Again, we cannot predict what will happen. And I don't think that our lives should be based on all external factors. But again, this is what my story is. And that happened. And I had this extra confidence, came into the audition with a little bit of, you know, love it or hate it, take me or leave me. (laughs) I have a great option. Um, Another thing to mention, which is uh, something to note, is that when I did auditions at 17, when I was in high school looking to get the bachelor's degree, I did audition at Curtis. And I made it to the final round, but I did not get accepted into the school. And of course, I ended up going to the Cleveland Institute, which was so great for me. But the point is, I'd already been down this road. I had been in that exact same hall, because they always do their finals in that hall, um, in the field concert hall at Curtis. And again, deja vu. I remembered this. (laughs) And You didn't accept me the last time. So I said, who knows what's going to happen this time? But again, I'm okay. That's okay. I'm just going to go out here and do my very best. I'm going to show them Michelle can and what I can give. And this time it worked out. (laughs) Well, there is a funny story, though, about that, right? About the piece you played. (laughs) You have found all of my dirt, Julie. (laughs) It's really good dirt. It's interesting dirt. (laughs) I did put it out there. So listen, hey. So yes, I I will add that little funny story. I was so confident and so ready to just go out and do my thing in this audition that I mixed up two pieces. Um, There was specifically on the audition list at Curtis, I was to play a certain piece by list. and. Other schools that I had recently done auditions at did not need the list. They needed this Debussy piece. So the long story short is in that moment, I didn't double check (laughs) the list. And I came in so short of myself. I said, it's definitely the Debussy. And I played through this piece and they let me play it all the way through. 
And when I was done, I look over at the judges and the teachers and they look completely confused. They are shuffling papers and what they knew the piece, granted, they didn't understand why I was playing it because it wasn't on my list. <laughs> and I was horrified. I, I just was, but I also, the way I was laughing, I think I was horrified and also just said, well, listen, what are we going to do? So I told them, I can play the list as well. And they kind of laughed and said, that's fine. So, you know, it never happened. The list never happened, but it, it just, uh, Again, oh, they didn't knows? make you. They didn't make you play the list then. No, they didn't. They. Actually oh my didn't. gosh! And they, you still got in. That's yes. hilarious. <laughs> Maybe you demonstrated that you, you know, being yourself, your authentic self, really had something to do with getting in. Then, wow, good for you. <laughs> so you have figured out your your path into the piano world. Um, you're doing exceptionally well, and now you have found yourself in the repertoire as well. So you have selected these two powerful women composers to be on your debut recording. And these are also composers who were neglected during their lifetimes or even abandoned, right? Their music was abandoned after their death. So tell me a little bit about these two composers and why it was so important to you to have them on your debut recording. Well, I I can tell you there was a very easy answer to that because I was discussing with, you know, colleagues and my manager and and all these things, figuring out, okay, what do we want for your first solo album? And I just immediately found myself heading straight to where I ended up with these two women in mind because they are such a great example of the kind of inspiration and purpose that I feel that that connection to my own identity in this field. When I grew up, I was fortunate enough to have literally my older sister as an example of a successful, talented musician of color uh, and female of color. And other than that, when I looked around, especially specifically at pianist, I could hardly count on one hand pianists that I knew of color and certainly very few female that had made it in this field, you know, that were successful performers or teachers or composers. I just, they were nowhere to be found. Growing up, I didn't play any music by any Black composers other than church music. Um, Nothing in the classical field was really ever assigned to me. I wasn't really aware of anyone except for Scott Joplin. And I think everybody knew Scott Joplin, the entertainer and all the famous rags. So I really, truly felt that Black musicians were successful in jazz and popular music as vocalists. There was a very narrow-minded view that I had, because that's what I saw, of what we had been able to be successful in. And I believe that on some level and felt lonely at times in the field, all through school. And I had gone through every single, all of these degrees and already out there working, teaching, performing. And it wasn't until 2016 that my view changed. And this was a turning point for me completely. I was introduced to the Florence Price Piano Concerto. And I was asked to play this piece 
I never heard of her, never heard of this piece. And I read through it and I just couldn't believe how beautiful it was. I mean, you can only imagine that moment and put yourself in my shoes. I mean, I've never been aware of somebody like her in this field. And I just couldn't get over it. And I remember at that point, I was reading her story. I was looking for anything I could find on her. I was looking to see, well, what else did she write? And then one of the things that was out there at that time was her piano sonata. I've never heard of this piano sonata. I'm a pianist. It's just, I order the music as fast as I can. I read through the second movement of the piano sonata. And I am in tears. I'm literally, I I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember exactly where I was sitting at the piano in my apartment at the time. And I was reading through it and there was just tears going down my eyes because I believe and still do that it's one of the most beautiful things ever written for piano is the second movement of the piano sonata. And I call my mother up and I just, I was emotional and I just thought, I'm almost getting emotional now just thinking of it because I said, how, how could they deny this woman her place in history? Why did no one know to share this with me? And, and that was just, that was it for me. So that was the beginning of the journey. And then of course, the more you look, the more you find. (laughs) It's just the way it goes. It was from there that I come across Margaret Bonds. I read that Margaret Bonds was actually one of Florence Price's most um, successful students. They met because Price moved to Chicago and unfortunately had a divorce, was alone, no family in Chicago. She'd moved from Little Rock, Arkansas, had kids, was divorced, and really had you know, no connections. She was just making them, and one of them was with the Bonds family. They actually took her in. And she lived with the Bonds family for a little bit until she was back on her feet. And during that time, she befriends the young, (laughs) she was just a little teenager at the time, the young Margaret Bonds. And at this point, Florence Price is in like her 40s. So again, this is the difference here. But she starts to teach her and mentor her. And it became a lifelong friendship and connection. And Margaret Bonds, of course, had her own story. She goes on to be a great composer and phenomenal pianist. She premiered many of Florence Price's works as a performer, but she wrote a lot for voice and piano. She didn't write as much, actually, for solo piano, not like Price. And one of her most influential and I I would say big, important works is The Spiritual Suite, which is on this album. And so I had to include this suite. I had to include it because it is just so great what she does with these spirituals. So at any rate, with these two, this friendship, this connection, and the fact that they were the first, they were the first to introduce me to a world of genius in Black composers. They deserve to be 
the first album I ever did. Michelle, while we're talking about the repertoire, let's also talk about the four, uh, the three fantasy pieces, track four, five, and six. What inspired you to include those works as well? So Price wrote many works for piano, including a lot of really great character pieces and short sets. As I look through the uh, catalog of music for solo piano, I wanted to include the most serious and challenging repertoire that she wrote for solo piano. And what that involves is her piano sonata and her four fantasies. Now, there's four fantasies. I have one, two, and four. Why not three? Well, um, that was actually a surprise to me as well. Number three is missing most of it. There are parts that they found to fantasy number three. We're missing, unfortunately, too much of it. And therefore, it is not published. And it is why it is not on my album. And I hope, I do hope, because again, many things have been discovered that we find it. What makes the compositional voice of Florence Price and Margaret Bonds unique? What sets them apart when you listen to their music or play their music? What do you, you know, what strikes you like, wow, this is what really sets them apart? I think um, it's slightly different, of course, for Price and Bonds in that they were writing in different generations and in different times. So, of course, you will see things in Bonds' spiritual suite that are a little bit more advanced and um, I would say just a little more modern and there's um, slightly different techniques of course used. But one thing that they both have in common and share on this album, I'll talk about that first, is the fact that they both were very religious. They both grew up in the church and in the black American gospel tradition and also they knew many of these well-known spirituals you know we a lot of us know certain spirituals like deep river and sometimes i feel like a motherless child but there's deep roots in these spirituals back to slavery and these were always extremely powerful and important in the black american community as something that really they owned you know and the and the significance of both hope and the connection to God, even some spirituals during slavery had hidden messages in the words. I mean, there was just so much connected to the Black American experience in spirituals that you see how both Margaret Bonds and Florence Price use the spiritual as inspiration in the works on this album. In the case of Florence Price, in every piece on this album, except for fantasy number one, the spiritual is used more as inspiration, but not direct quotation. So you will actually hear, for instance, in the second movement of the piano sonata, that melody is going to be reminiscent of spirituals. You will hear melodies in Fantasy 2 and 4 that are, again, very much in the the style and um, form of spirituals.
but all of them are original melodies by Price. Whereas in her fantasy number one, What she has done is she's taken a well-known spiritual, Sinner, please, don't let this harvest pass. And it is basically a theme and variations on that spiritual. That's basically what's happening in fantasy number one. And she develops the spiritual in really fantastic ways. I mean, you literally hear what sounds like the Chopin revolutionary, you know, octave sequence you'll hear in my left hand at the end of Fantasy One, and it just reminds you of Chopin there. To go to Margaret Bonds, the spiritual suite, all three pieces in the suite are connected to known spirituals. And in this case, she's arranging them in, in unique manners. The first one, Valley of the Bones, the middle section starts, it breaks out into a blues riff. I mean, when I was learning it, it felt like I was, you know, my own little band here and everybody was coming in with their own improvisation. It's just totally unexpected. In Troubled Water, the third one, you literally hear rhythms of African drums. She's using so many different techniques and actually even different styles and periods to arrange these well-known spirituals. And it's done actually quite differently than Price. Her voice is very much connected to the romantic period of classical music. You will hear throughout the sonata and the fantasies moments, as I mentioned with Chopin earlier, you will hear moments that will remind you of Schumann and Brahms and Debussy and Chopin and a lot of actually well-known, you know, composers and styles that we're used to. Again, she's not copying them, but she's definitely clearly inspired by these composers before her time. And Bonds, on the other hand, as I said, it, it's she she actually wrote the spiritual suite much later in her life, and she died in the 70s. So we're looking at an entirely different time period. She's using more modern jazz styles. She's using all these different percussive techniques. She takes what I would say the arranging of a spiritual to a whole different level. And it's really unique to see how they intersect and also how they differ based on their journey.
You know, as I'm listening to you talk and the passion about about these women, and I think about you as an educator, and you know how you were not exposed to this music in all the years that you were in school. How are you looking at this music now from an educator's standpoint? Well, I can tell you changes were made immediately <laughs> in that in that regard. So, for instance, Curtis, uh, it was in my first year, we actually had the flexibility in the piano department to direct mini courses. We could sort of decide the topic and focus that we wanted to do for these special courses for pianists. So, of course, I was so excited and I said, I know exactly what my first mini course is going to be. And it's going to be on Black composers in classical music. So it was actually really fun for me because I had seven weeks for this course. That So that was seven different composers to bring to light. And I did a lot of research and, you know, again, came across more names that I didn't know much about. And I was able to then learn more and then share that with the Curtis piano students. And at the end of the course, every piano student was assigned piano works by these various composers that we talked about and had to perform them, learn them and perform them at the end of the class and actually talk before they performed, as they would to any audience, a quick little bit of information about the piece and the composer they were going to play. And so here's what's really great. It's one thing to do a course, but then the question is, what do the students do with it? And I think the part that made me the most, like, really happy was that at least two or three students that next year programmed pieces that they learned in that class into recitals that they went out and did. And that, to me, was everything. Because it's about sharing, yes, sharing the story, sharing the information. But then it's then those people that you shared it with now want to share it with someone else. You have to put it out there because then it gets others excited. And that's the goal. If we end all of this journey with only myself and Samantha Edge and others who have been promoting these composers, if we're the only ones playing it, then what have we done? We want to change the landscape. So that was really exciting. And, and so that was on the college level. And then I have a couple of high school students I still work with. And what's been really fun is seeing them ask me, not like, oh, okay, let me think. Let me try to assign you something. I've had students of mine that have seen my journey say, I love that fantasy. I really want to learn one of the fantasies. Like, can we do it? And so I've assigned to all my students, even the little ones, because she wrote beginner pieces, beginner piano, all the way through advanced, actually. She made a point of this. I've assigned it to like eight-year-olds, little pieces of hers. Like, it makes me extremely happy to see them enjoy this music and really want to learn it. You were the recipient of the 2022 Sphinx Medal of Excellence, the highest honor bestowed by the Sphinx organization. What does that what does that honor mean to you? That that was huge. I was aware of this uh, award, you know, for a little while now and in awe of those had, who had received it. I obviously hope that someday that could be me and, you know, when it finally is, you're you're just floored. I mean, I was so honored to be chosen for for this award. As well, for me, I think it's just what Sphinx stands for and what they work to achieve and have achieved is so inspiring to me that everything for them is about changing that landscape. And that's 
part of my journey as well with these composers, with Florence Price and Margaret Bonds on this album, is um, you know helping in my own way to change that landscape. Um, and what was really beautiful was how that award has also helped me in some of these recording projects and some to come. Also looking to do, you know, commission the composers of color and being part of that process. Michelle, what do you bring to their music that maybe another pianist isn't or can't bring to this music? I've been told as I perform the music of Price and Bonds that they feel that I am just completely engrossed. Like I put myself completely into the music and the performance of it and that it just seems so natural. And I've I've heard you know, many different descriptions of the experience in some of my performances of this repertoire. But as I analyze what it is that they're picking up on or what the listener picks up on, I can say that what they're getting is this complete, deep connection and understanding of who these women were, their journey, their struggles, and their love of music. I feel that when I perform Price, I somehow, I just feel connected to her as the person. I feel like I'm channeling her. I imagine when I perform her music that she's there in the room and she's taking this in. I grew up in the church as well. I knew these spirituals. I connect very, very completely to the religious undertones of these pieces as well. I grew up singing. And so when I'm playing these melodies, I'm singing them. I feel that I just am on this journey with these composers. And the final thing I feel is a huge sense of pride. I feel so honored to be one of the conduits of their story. To be able to be part of this journey, to be part of the discovery, rediscovery, because again, many did know them, but after they died, they were no longer really promoted. So being part of this rediscovery and excitement of their story and their music and their voice in America, that is everything to me. And when I perform their music, I perform it with that knowledge and that pride. Because if I can do anything with this album, what I hope to do is to share with the world that these women deserve, deserved and deserve now, a place in the canon of great American classical music. The recording is called Revival, Music of Price and Bonds with pianist Michelle Kahn. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer of new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Mocker. Mm-hmm.